from Asia Society Switzerland. This is State of Asia, a podcast on the world's most dynamic region. I'm your host, Nico Lofsinger. Today, I'm speaking to C. Raja Mohan, one of India's foremost foreign policy thinkers. The problem is not of a US-dominated global order, but of a China-dominated Asian order. We talk about the challenges to find balance among the Asian powers. What we need is practical answers. How do you ensure the diversity of Asia fully reflected in, in, a, in a regional system? And we hear what he thinks of Western worries about India's democracy. The West found it very convenient to deal with the Pakistani military dictators. It loved the Chinese communist dictatorship, but they could make lots and lots of money in China. And now for the West now to come and say, we like you, but you're not good enough. Welcome to the state of Asia. C. Raja Mohan is a senior fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New Delhi, India. He is also a visiting research professor at the Institute of South Asian Studies of the National University of Singapore. Raja was the founding director of the India Center at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a professor of South Asian Studies at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi and at the Rajnaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. He also served on India's National Security Advisory Board. He's published widely on India's foreign policy and security policies, Asian geopolitics and the global governance of advanced technologies. He's also a columnist for foreign policy and a contributing editor on international affairs at the Indian Express. Raja, welcome to State of Asia. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. Thanks for having me. Raja, just a few weeks ago, India celebrated its 75th anniversary of independence. How did you celebrate yourself? We had uh, two parts to it. We had a kind of an informal uh, discussion among friends, uh, watching the prime minister speak, because it was a special occasion. Normally, the Indian prime minister addresses the nation in the morning. So we, we had a, you know, a chat on uh, what exactly is the strategy for India in terms of the goals that he's setting. So half of it was the business we do for a living, which is analysis. The other part, of course, we had uh, a family get together uh, celebrating the Independence Day and uh, going out uh, to meet friends. It always seems to me that India is so vast, so complex that it's, it's, it's impossible to comprehend. And I think generally the West, if I can say that the media here is not doing a good job of sort of you know, capturing everything that's going on in India, the complexity of the country and its development. If you look at sort of the foreign coverage, the Western coverage, maybe the European coverage of India, is there a specific story that you think we're missing out on? Something that you wish outside observers of India would focus more on? Look, I think what's happened in India in the last two decades is really the acceleration of its economic development. India's really, uh, really grown and uh, there is a whole new elites uh, that are coming up. Uh, so the, the transformations that are unfolding in India, those are not fully captured. The way the new elites think, the changes in food habits, the changes in social habits. So you have a massive urbanization that is going on. So it ends up, actually, the Indian newspapers themselves are pretty bad at it because really covering daily political stories and much of the Western press, all these decades, it was easy to be a reporter in India because you didn't have to know the local language. There's so many of them in any case. Your interaction was limited to English-speaking people and the elite, one kind of an elite. But today, 
the foreign press uh, struggles to, you know, the prime minister speaks in Hindi. A lot of the people in the new elite, uh, they speak in Hindi. So uh, the metaphor, the idiom, a lot of that is missed in terms of how India is reshaping itself. Uh, but there is so much development, uh, so much of uh, transformation that is taking place. Uh, that doesn't get reflected fully. Uh, so I would say it's still the coverage of India is still well below the surface, uh, well below the possibility. It seems to me that while India's economic development has been remarkable, especially if you look at the at the long term, maybe since 91, it also has somewhat consistently lagged behind expectations. Is, is that a wrong perception? No, if you look at the general numbers, I mean, quite clearly, I mean, if, and if we compare them to China uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, clearly, India has not performed to the same extent. But then India is a cosmos in itself. In, in that sense, you know, this whole, uh, those of us in India who want India to be another China, or those of us, uh, those outside who see India not really doing what it does. But, but I think uh, the story is really what you have. The question is, why has India not performed as much? Or what are the forces that are holding it back? What are the internal obstacles to uh, to transforming economic transformation of India? So I'm not going to use the democracy argument that India India is behind because it's a democracy. The height of the the interwar period produced a, a fascination for socialism, a fascination for collectivism, uh, which the new national movement uh, fully adopted. Uh, we were not communists like Russia or China, but we were socialist. So there was a lot of suspicion of the private uh, enterprise. So the attempt to build a mix economy in a country that was really quite had a long you know, millennia of tradition of private enterprise kind of complicated the possibilities. But I think it's the reforms of the post-91 reforms have, have unleashed some of those energies. But the power of the bureaucratic state is still pretty high. That holds back a lot of the possibilities. India is of course, in an Asian context, often compared to China and to China's development. But the two countries also have a long and, dare I say, somewhat complicated relationship. And really, right now, they seem to be at the lowest point in decades, especially since the two militaries clashed briefly in the Himalaya in 2020, with 20 Indian soldiers dead. You wrote a column in the Indian Express in August, where you said, India has been far too idealistic, despite evidence that Delhi's contradictions with Beijing are structural, and not amenable to easy resolution. Delhi's reluctance to come to terms with that has cost India dearly, end quote. Can you elaborate how this has already cost India dearly? What are the costs that India had to bear for, in your terms, failing to realize the structural contradictions with Beijing? You know, for India, one of the things along with socialism, I mean, uh, in the interwar period, it was a powerful force and the Indian national movement that grew in that period absorbed it. But it also, because of the anti-colonial struggles, the notion of Asian solidarity, of Asian unity, the romantic conception that India and China would uh, join hands to build a post-colonial order was so strong that India was willing to uh, go the extra mile to, to work with China. But it overlooked the fact that, look, we have a disputed uh, border. Uh, the Chinese have historic claims. Uh, and the inability to, or the reluctance to, to confront that problem while constantly hoping the shared convergence, which was largely presumably anti-Western, kept India in a hopeful mode trying to sweep under the carpet the problems that we have because you're neighbors, you have a boundary dispute. And if you don't settle it, uh, you're going to have problems. 
So I think that's where we are. Successive governments thought the border dispute can be set aside and we're going to do the business of building a new regional and global order. Uh, but we Chinese kept coming back to their claims and they're, today they're stronger and they, they're asserting them far more vigorously, putting the whole relationship in jeopardy again. In February of 2022, you were interviewed for the Mekong Review by James Crabtree, who incidentally will also be joining us at the State of Asia conference later this year, as are you, of course. And James wrote, the world's most important geopolitical relationship is clearly between China and the United States. But over time, India will grow into an important global power too, transforming Asia's balance of power into a complex triangular affair, end quote. I would love to hear from you, how will the world change as a result of, you know, sort of this being a bilateral affair to a triangular affair? And how, in your view, should India manage this somewhat complicated triangular relationship between China, the United States and India itself? You know, unlike uh, Europe, uh, which was uh, down after the Second World War and was largely at the mercy of the United States and the Soviet Union, Asia It's not just India that is rising. I mean, you have a Japan that is assertive. You have Korea, South Korea, which has challenges. So I think what, what I envisage for the future is a multipolar Asia where you have large countries uh, with significant capabilities within the region. And uh, many of them uh, are going to find it difficult to accept the Chinese claim to represent Asia uh, and are going to uh, find ways of balancing China. And there are here is the here is the, the trick. I mean that that we need the U.S. to balance China, but it can't be leaving it to the U.S. alone because after all, uh, the U.S.-China relationship is a is a is a deep one. Therefore, it has to have an American dimension as well as an, a regional dimension. That is, it's not just the U.S. doing the heavy lifting or that India, Japan, and others will have to do. And I think the Americans have recognized that. That unlike in Europe, where the European allies are unwilling or reluctant to take on larger defense responsibilities or in burden sharing. Uh, in Asia, I think India is going to be prepared to do a lot more. Japan is going to do a lot more. So you have actually a, a structure of, of balance of power in, in, in Asia where India, Japan, Korea, Australia, all these countries are going to play a larger role. But India will be the largest of the Asian countries by the in the next 20 years and its partnership with the US and the local networks that it builds with Japan as Korea and Australia will also become important. You mentioned this need for balancing in the region and if we look at this India of course has grouped itself with the US, Japan and Australia as part of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Dialogue, but it's also still a part of the BRICS, Brazil, Russland, India, China and South Africa. That's an entirely different grouping. So One could argue that that's India's way of balancing. It seems to me a little bit that Dale is just trying to play both sides of the court. I don't think that's what we are trying to do. We are not trying to balance between BRICS and, uh, and the United States. We are trying to balance China, which is the source of our problems. But then 20 years ago, when uh, at the end of the Cold War, that was 30 years ago, the fear of the unipolar moment saw India work with China and Russia and say, look, we need a multipolar world and that we need to limit the dangers of a unipolar moment. That's how uh, the, the BRICS came into being. Uh, but today, the problem is not of a US-dominated global order, but of a China-dominated Asian order. 
that the Chinese are much bigger today. Chinese economy is six times bigger than India's. Uh, it overtaking Japan as the largest economy in the region somewhere about more than a decade ago. So what you have is actually a, a fundamental shift in the orientation of India from wanting a multipolar world that limits American power to promoting a multipolar Asia where the balance within the region is maintained and that the region does not come under the hegemony or the domination of one country, that is China, in which then a partnership with the US as well as a partnership with the other Asian countries becomes important. But then why are we in the BRICS? Uh, Russia was our friend in the past. Russia often uh, helped us balance uh, China in the past. But today, those two are in an alliance, that is Moscow and Beijing. So that would uh, make it impossible for India to bet on Moscow to to balance uh, Beijing. So there we are. There was a set of assumptions that were made at the end of the Cold War. Those assumptions have proved wrong. uh, And that today, India is uh, operating on a different set of assumptions. So it is not finding sitting in both camps, but BRICS, if you can tell me what they've done, in the last two years, uh, that'll be hard to say. Uh, while Quad is uh, born recently, but it is making progress. If we stay on the topic of the need for balance within Asia, would that maybe suggest that what we also need for this balance to appear would be greater Asian unity, if not between India and China, then between what we could refer to as the Asian middle powers, the Southeast Asian nations that are standing between those big powers of, of China and India, and and maybe Japan. And if that's so, do you see that happening? Can India play a role in helping to unify or bring together at least parts of Asia? Is there an Asian leadership role for India to be played? In fact, uh, we started with that notion. I mean, uh, because of the anti-colonial struggle and the shared uh, anti-imperial sentiment with uh, other Asian countries. I mean, Japan was an exception. Japan was already an imperial power. Uh, The notion that you know, India would bring together the Asian countries, including China, to to stand up against the West uh, to build an alternative system. Uh, that was the vision in the in the 1940s. But that vision ran very quickly uh, into competing nationalisms, uh, territorial disputes, and a range of issues. Uh, so what we have today uh, is not Asian unity. I mean, uh, I don't see the kind of notions, the romantic notions of Asian unity uh, out there. But what we need is practical answers. Uh, How do you structure a stable balance of power? How do you ensure the diversity of Asia fully reflected in a a regional system? Uh, And uh, how do we uh, make sure that the interests of all major Asian countries are met? Uh, For that, I think you need the U.S. Uh, U.S. role is critical. And uh, many, at least some of us, also think the role of Europe too is critical. And that Europe once, which is a colonial power, we said, look, Europeans, it would be nice if the Europeans can just simply get out and stay out, which they did for their own reasons. But today, uh, you need, I think, uh, both Europe and, and the US to be able to produce a balance and a stable system uh, within, the, within the region. ASEAN performed that role to some extent in the last uh, 30, 40 years where they created a framework. But once the rise of China, the rapidity of China's rise relative to its neighbors has weakened those frameworks that we've had. But China now as it becomes assertive, uh, the ASEAN's own uh, future uh, is under stress. So therefore, but we need collaboration within Asia. We need networking in Asia and and we need uh, some rules of the road. And and those have to be devised. And I'm sure India will play a major role in shaping that in the years ahead. Speaking of the need for regional integration and collaboration, 
there was a huge Asian trade agreement that was concluded not too long ago. The so-called RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, took years to negotiate. It includes most Asian countries, but notably not India, which pulled out very, very late in the process. Why did India engage in the process, but then decide to not be a part of it? It's a good question. I mean, it really points to a fundamental shift in India's both economic strategy in terms of uh, internally, as well as its uh, external strategy on trade, commercial cooperation with other countries. India did not join RCEP uh, because of a strong sentiment in the country that continuing further in an Asian integration led by China, India's manufacturing sector would be hollowed out. Uh, from 91, uh, onwards till to 2019, when India did not join the RCEP, you could say India was following a course of uncritical globalization. If Chinese produce cheap uh, telecom components, uh, we will take them. But in the last few years, the sense that uh, whether it is on the telecom issue in terms of uh, the security questions uh, or China's weaponization of trade, where it simply becomes the factory for the whole world, uh, its attitude to supply chains in the uh, during the pandemic, uh, all these have I think justify India's decision that a large country like India cannot simply hand over its manufacturing to, to China uh, and that it needs to build domestic capabilities. It needs to create jobs uh, and that there are no real jobs without a manufacturing sector. So, so therefore, the need to bring in manufacturing back into India and, and the need to avoid unilateral economic disarmament vis-a-vis uh, -vis China were principal uh, reasons for it. Uh, but what India has done since is equally important that it is now negotiating uh, bilateral trade agreements. Of course, bilateral trade agreements are not never as good as a regional or global agreements. But the fact is India uh, has signed a free trade agreement with Australia. Uh, it is assigned another one with uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, it is hoping to conclude another with Britain in the coming days. Uh, and uh, it's just started negotiations with Europe. So what India has moved is from simply being an appendage to China in Asia. India wants to build domestic capabilities. And India is looking to more complementary economies in the West. That is, in the long term now, India sees trade collaboration with the Western countries is going to be far more, uh, shall we say, beneficial mutually rather than simply joining a trade agreement uh, which would further uh, deepen China's advantages in simply producing cheap goods for everyone in Asia. From all these years of opposing the West, today I think India is engaging the West far more. Uh, that I think is also a part of the balancing strategy, uh, I would say, for Asia, that it can't just be one economic power in Asia that produces all the components of a vaccine or that produces all the masks uh, for in a, in a pandemic or produces all the telecom equipment for the rest of the region. So I think that's not a happy state to be in. If you look at Indian foreign policy in the region in the recent past, I think we could argue that with regards to its immediate neighbors, it hasn't been particularly effective. Relationships between India and Pakistan, of course, are historically fraught. But it also seems to me that China has you know, been able to make inroads in places like Sri Lanka, for example, where Indian influence, I dare say, may have been declining. So, of course, you know, there's, there's just the arrival of China on the stage. But wouldn't we also have to acknowledge that Indian foreign policy hasn't been particularly effective in recent years? No, I, I would agree with you broadly that uh, what we've seen happened since 1947, at least till 1991, uh, was India's relative decline uh, because India turned inward, its economy grew very slowly, uh, its natural connectivities were, were uh, severed in the name of socialism in one country. So actually the choices that India made on the economic front made it harder for India to stitch the region together. 
So that's one set of issues. Second set of issues was the legacy of partition, that the partition divided the subcontinent on religious lines, and that left uh, new new sovereignties uh, within the region, uh, new battles, new boundary disputes, uh, which made it politically very hard to be able to uh, to pursue a, a regional uh, cooperation mechanism in which India would play a lead role. And third, just when India was divided, uh, China was united. Uh, you know, 1947, India was partitioned. 1949, China was united under a strong uh, communist rule. So that gave China the leverage simply to exploit the divisions within the subcontinent. And India struggled to bring a measure of unity within the region. So so I think we have a major challenge. And, and I think uh, the importance of re-engineering the region, of uh, moving the region beyond the legacies of partition in the 75th year of independence, and to be able to lift uh, the rest of the region along with India on the economic front, I would say that two of the most important uh, strategic tasks for India in the next 25 years as it moves towards the century of independence. What we're clearly seeing is that Western countries, the US especially, but certainly also Europe, are more and more seeing India as a possible ally to balance out China. Part of the reason why India is seen as a possible partner here, of course, is that India is a democracy. And so in a way, it's ironic that over the recent years, since Narendra Modi is prime minister in India... There have also been increasing worries in many places around the world, especially in Western countries, about the decline of democracy in India under the Modi government. How do you think are these worries affecting India's standing in the world and especially India's relationship with the West? Coming from India, I mean, uh, firstly, this argument that democracy is a criterion for U.S. alliances, uh, that's not our lived experience in the last 75 years. Uh, that through the Cold War, when Indian democracy, shall we say, was great, uh, we in the U.S. and the West were on the opposite sides. Uh, the West found it uh, very convenient to deal with the Pakistani military dictators. Uh, it loved the Chinese uh, communist dictatorship because they could make lots and lots of money in China. And now for the West now to come and say, we like you, but you're not just good enough. I mean, I, I think, I don't think... The West has the capacity to define its interests and, and both in, on its record uh, and in the future to make democracy as the principal framework on which it builds cooperation in, in Asia. I mean, I mean uh, you couldn't do it in Europe. Uh, Spain and Portugal were parts of NATO long when they were military dictatorships. Uh, Greece was a military dictatorship. And then we saw the US and the West support some of the most anti-democratic forces uh, in the Taliban in the in trying to overthrow the Soviet Union's uh, occupation. So I think your record is pretty grim. So, so I'm not really worried about the democracy argument. Uh, I'm, I have faith in the Western realism uh, that uh, there are interests which bring us together. On the democracy question itself, the idea that Indian democracy is about to disappear, I, mean, I think it's, it's premature. And the battle is for the Indians to fight. Uh, and for us to strengthen our democracy, deepen it, uh, that is our task. And uh, having seen the record of the West in promoting democracy in elsewhere, uh, I, I think if anyone is going to bet that the West is going to promote democracy in India by its policies, I think that's fundamentally mistaken. Uh, so I think uh, by putting the finger, uh, you make things much worse. And I think uh, India has a resilience and the depth uh, to build its own society. And, and I think the West should realize we were democracy when it was not such a fashionable thing to be a democracy in the in the Cold War. Uh, so so I, I don't think this is a very facile argument. Uh, and, and the third aspect to this is this notion that 
the West can actually do it. And I think the post-91 illusions that the West has the power of the God to engineer internal aspects of other societies, uh, that is, I think, that has taken a beating in the West itself. Uh, and I think the Biden administration, at least, uh, constantly talks about humility uh, and the problems at home uh, before you preach to the others. So my, my recommendation to would be that, look, uh, Europe and America both needs to strengthen their own democracies. And, and India has even a bigger task. And, and, but that task cannot be done uh, by pointing fingers from outside. In our last episode of the podcast, we had Tomohiko Taniguchi as a guest, who's a former advisor to the late Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister of Japan. And he said that it would be smart for Japan to keep close to the next great power in Asia, by which, of course, he meant India. How do you see and how do you assess the Japan-India relationship? There is a lot more India and Asia, India and Japan can do together in Asia. But for Japanese, a far more comfortable doing it in a in a in a format which includes the United States. After all, the Quad was a was a was a Japanese idea, and it's also the Japanese who want to bring in the West. So for the for Japan and India, which both see a massive China out there uh, and becoming assertive under Xi Jinping's leadership, we need to do more with each other. But we also need our Western friends. We need the U.S. We need the Europeans to build a broadest possible coalition to pool our strengths uh, because China is it's a much superior power uh, and, and that's the reason why I think uh, Japan is reaching out to the Europeans uh, we are reaching out to the Europeans uh, and uh, the Americans will continue to play a major role uh, in the region you spoke of the need to balance out China but you also spoke about this not meaning having to contain China having to isolate China that strikes me as a very difficult balance to achieve China is too big to be contained. I mean, I, I think we should have no illusions on that. Uh, unlike Soviet Union, which withdrew from the global economy, said, look, we are building an alternative system. Uh, China today is the second largest uh, capitalist country hoping to overtake the Americans uh, sooner than later. And my sense is that we need a, a framework in which we have to live with China. I mean, China is not disappearing in, anytime soon. It's been around India, China, and some of the oldest uh, continuous civilizations here. So China's uh, centrality to the region will remain. And when we say the difference between balancing and containment is that, that we are not trying to isolate China. We're not trying to focus on regime change within China. Uh, what we're trying to do is to really build a coalition uh, that would raise the costs for China's unilateral actions that would make it harder for China to, to take other people's territories and to persuade China to observe some broad rules uh, in the region which are beneficial to, to everyone. You've written many books about this very basic question. What kind of great power will India and should India eventually become? Do you see an answer on the horizon? I think India, like uh, many other countries, I think two powerful tendencies. I mean, I think uh, one is the nationalists want to be a great power. Uh, that tendency has always been there. The other is the universalist tendency in, in a sense of thinking about the world in a much broader terms rather than merely its own self-interest. So I would say you could argue that uh, India was far too universalist in terms of its championship of the developing world, the global south, while actually neglecting uh, its own development, uh, its own uh, capacity to uh, to secure uh, its frontiers, etc. Uh, today, maybe some would say uh, India perhaps is going in the other direction, which is to be emphasized power of building comprehensive national power uh, and uh, the danger of forgetting the broader universalist principles. You cannot 
be purely nationalistic, that you need a, a, a universalist vision that balances out. But sometimes, you know, like in the US, we've seen the kind of uh, excesses of global leadership, which lead into military adventurism abroad, uh, while the others who say, look, isolationists or otherwise to say, don't go too far, look after yourself. Uh, so those, I think you can have extremes. But my sense is uh, statecraft uh, in large countries, uh, which are continental-sized countries, uh, it is, I think, uh, a constant requirement to leave in nationalism with internationalism, to combine self-development with the larger construction of global rules. Here, I think, for example, on climate change, I mean, uh, what India does uh, will affect the world. If it continues to burn coal, There is one set of outcomes. I see Europeans are going back to coal, but that's for another day. The need for India to think more broadly, given its size, the weight of its population. So I think that would, those simultaneous movement on, you know, the the, the two trends will continue. Uh, Like in the US, we see, uh, like we've seen in China, uh, that those two trends will continue to interact. But the very nature of uh, India's uh, size will necessarily make it a, a both a, a strong nationalist uh, power as well as an internationalist uh, power. Raja Mohan, thank you very much for this excellent conversation. Thank you for having been on the podcast. And of course, we look forward to seeing you soon here in Zurich for the State of Asia conference in November. Thank you for having me. That was C. Raja Mohan, one of India's leading foreign policy thinkers and a senior fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New Delhi. Raja will be here in Zurich on November 9th to deliver the State of Asia address. And the next day, he will speak at the inaugural State of Asia conference organized by Asia Society Switzerland. Asia is shaping the big issues of our time. The State of Asia conference will give you an overview of current and future developments in Asia, bringing together a selection of our most trusted experts from around the globe, including, besides Raja, Leni Roredo, until this summer the Vice President of the Philippines, James Crabtree, Executive Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore, Agatha Krutz, who heads research on EU-China relations at Rodin Group, John Ju, Chief Economist for Asia at Swiss Re in Hong Kong, and Tomohiko Taniguchi, who was Special Advisor to Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister, the late Shinzo Abe. For a complete list of speakers, several of whom will feature in future episodes of this podcast, visit our website at asiasociety.org Switzerland and click on the State of Asia banner. This is also where you can request tickets to the conference and find information on the many other activities of Asia Society Switzerland. To stay up to date, be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. All the links are also in the show notes of this episode. If you like this show, please subscribe and consider leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you. State of Asia is produced by Remco Tanis with additional research by no one really. He does this all by himself. My name is Nikolov Singer. Till next time. Mm-hmm.